Well, welcome back, guys. Um, today we are concluding our Light of the World sermon series. But before we get there, I'll just let you know of what's coming up in the next couple weeks. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard, but this Tuesday uh, we have an election. Um, and uh, so this upcoming Sunday, uh, I'm going to have a prepare a message, kind of like a post-election message. I'm not sure what I'm going to say yet. We'll find out on Tuesday. Uh, I'm just kidding. I have certain thoughts of what I already know I'm going to say. Um, but uh, I, I hope, guys, it, it, is a, it is an incredible honor and a privilege. I mean, Christians have existed across time and space and in all sorts of, uh, they, they can exist in all sorts of political governance. Um, we, we, it, we don't necessarily need one type of government or another. Um, but it's, it's an incredible honor to exist in a country where our voice matters, where we have a vote that can sway uh, the collective uh, good of, of the country. And so I hope you, you utilize um, uh, that, that, that honor, that privilege on Tuesday. And next Sunday, we will talk about what is the relationship between church and state and what does the results of this election mean for us as Christians and, and how we move forward as followers of Jesus. But before we get there, we are going to conclude our Light of the World sermon series. The idea behind it has been simple. Um, that Jesus, we believe, Jesus is the light. That he is the visible image of the invisible God. And in him, we see the fullness of who God is and what he desires for his people. And we've been looking at uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, verse 7 through 8, where, where Jesus commissions his disciples. He says, as those who bear my name, as those who um, are, are known um, by my Father, who, who are offering their lives to worship me, to follow me, there are certain tasks, there are certain actions that should accompany that. And we've been looking at each one of them, and I'm going to read the passage once more. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew 10, and he says, as you go, Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at each one of them. We've looked, what does it mean when we say the kingdom of heaven? What is that? God's sovereignty. What does it mean when God says heal the sick and, and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers? And it's been challenging. Um, notwithstanding the technical difficulties. It's been challenging words for us. But today as we conclude this series, we're going to look at that, that last phrase. Because in these, these statements of tremendous power, Jesus sort of sums them up with this foundational philosophy. And he says, freely you received, freely give. Freely you received, freely give. And I mean, that probably sounds a little odd to us because if we consider our world and, and today, everything has a cost, right? Everything costs something. Nothing is free except perhaps this. I want to start um, by looking at a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is talking about his ministry to the church in Corinth and how he brought the good news of Jesus to them. He actually did what Jesus told his disciples to do. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He brought the good news. He said the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and he did it for free. 
And so there's a principle at work in Paul's ministry and at work in this world that, that I want to uh, focus our attention on at first before we go further. So we can understand exactly what Jesus is saying and why this message of God's good news is so incredible. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3 through 12, uh, th- this is what Paul is saying. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, who is Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others should have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Essentially, Paul is pointing out this this theory, this principle in the earth, that nothing is free, right? Nothing is free. And he gives these examples. He goes, a soldier who offers his life, his body, to serve his country, he shouldn't do that, or she shouldn't do that on their own dime. That makes no sense, right? We should compensate them for that. Someone who plants a vineyard and, and, and... toils and sweats over these grapes they should absolutely drink of the wine they should eat of the grapes it would be ludicrous if they don't a shepherd who gives their time and their energy to caring for the the sheep this flock well they should take the fleece right to stay warm they should drink the milk if we give we should receive that's the way the world works. And if we don't do that, it won't be sustainable. I mean, this is essentially what Paul is pointing out is Newton's first law of thermodynamics, right? Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's transferred. And we see this everywhere. Nothing is free. Everything has a cost. If I pour out, I need someone to pour back into me or I'm not going to be able to sustain this. So we pour out our time and our energy for employers and employers give us Money. We've decided in our economy that our time and energy is transferable and currency to dollars and cents. Whether we're right or not, we'll figure out one day. But we've decided it's transferable. And the harder the jobs, the harder the occupations, the more money uh, they get paid in return to fill them back up. Except, of course, teachers, because we've decided teachers are just superhumans, and so they can keep pouring out and pouring out and get paid next to nothing, but I digress there. But who's been in a relationship, right? You've been in a relationship where it feels all one-sided. Like, I'm pouring out, listening, and, and being there for you, but you don't pour back into me with an intimacy and, and affection. And Paul says this. He goes, in the law it says this, don't tread or don't muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain. If the ox is working to tread the grain, like, let the ox eat. Don't muzzle it. Otherwise, like, the the ox will grow faint and weary and pass out. This is just objective. 
energy has to be transferred. If, if I am pouring out energy, there has to be a refilling or it won't be sustainable. Yet in verse 12, Paul says, nevertheless, nevertheless, this is true. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ, which is to say this principle holds true, but the gospel of Jesus does not work like this in the world. Paul is saying, if I pour out the gospel to you, you actually cannot refill me. There is nothing in the world, no money, no praise, there, no, no, no milk. There is nothing in the world that you could give me that would make this a fair transfer, that could refill me for what I am giving you in the good news of God's love. It is absolutely an unequal trade. It is non-transferable. Essentially what Paul is doing is saying that the gospel does not work like religion. And religion at its base, religion is essentially the same idea. It's looking at things on an equal plane saying, okay, I pour out my devotion to the gods. Religion is just a system where, where I give my devotion, I give my offering, I give my, I give my life, my prayers to the gods, and in return, the gods give me prosperity. They give me favor. They, they answer my prayers. It's the same principle. It's the idea of a contract. We sign a contract. I do X, and then the gods do Y. I do X, you do Y, this makes this equal, this makes this work. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Paul is saying the gospel is not like that at all. Unfortunately, we can find churches and we can find periods in church history where it has worked like that, where it has worked according to the principle of religion. You give God X and God through Jesus gives you Y. And I'm sorry where that's happened. I'm sorry where it still happens because it is so far afield from what the power and the potency and the glory of what this thing actually is. I mean, indulgences in the 15th century might be like the clearest example of this. So in the Catholic Church in the 15th century, you literally bought forgiveness from the church. Like notice when we talked about the offering that we just took up, I said, I make it very clear, you can't repay God. It's not like by giving him a little money. It's like, oh, thanks, God, for giving me eternal life. Here's a hundred bucks. Like, you can't repay him. We're not trying to, I give you some money, God, you give me eternal life. That's not how it works. It's rather because he has been so good to us that as a sign of realizing how good he is, how could we hold anything back? We give him a portion to remember that he is our provider. But in the 15th century, uh, the indulgences, literally you went to the Catholic Church and you bought forgiveness. You paid money and they said, okay, now you're forgiven by God. And of course, this was super corrupt, super unbiblical. Uh, and those who had the most money to buy their forgiveness are those who probably needed it the most because they were engaged in economic practices that were exploitative and abusive. But we see this same theory even in, in the church. I, I would dare say that probably some of you show up to Hope Brooklyn or show up to church with this theory. And here, here's what I mean. You come in, you think, okay, if I behave well, God accepts me. If I behave poorly, God rejects me. That's just the view of moralism. And it's the same theory of a contract. 
you think that God's favor or displeasure toward you is based on what you do. I do X. He gives Y. To which Paul would say, absolutely not. That's not what this is. Ever. No matter if you had a great week, you were in the word, you were praying, you were being generous, that does not mean you have any more right to show up in his presence on Sunday than if your week was just in the dumps. Both of y'all are completely equal, completely undeserving, completely deserving, however you want to call it, to show up. This is not at all what the gospel is. The prosperity gospel is also another modern day example of like, it, it abides by the theory of religion, by this principle. I give God a certain amount of faith. God gives me favor and prosperity in return. It's this religious impulse built on the philosophy of a contract that everything has a cost and that everything can be transferred. I give God X. God provides me Y. Energy is not created or destroyed. It's transferred. And Paul is saying, yes, that's how the world works. And in many ways, it's, it's necessary. If an oxen is doing work, let it eat or it won't be able to work anymore. If, if people are, are pouring out their energy in their life for their employer, the employer better like compensate them with something so they can continue to do that. that. That's good. That's a principle. But this is not that. Paul says, I will not bring religious contracts into my preaching because it will lead you away from the invitation of God. Because in religion, if I do X and God does Y, that means we're equals. That means I actually don't love or trust God. I put my trust in this contract that God has to uphold. And that's not at all what's going on. I will not make use of this right, says Paul, so that I do not put anything in the way of you truly seeing Jesus for who he is. Which the question is then, who is Jesus? What is this gospel that Paul is bringing. And guys, it's so obvious we miss it all the time. It's so obvious we can't even comprehend it. Essentially, the gospel of Jesus is so priceless, so invaluable, no one can afford it. Which means it's not a contract. Which means it's a gift. It is a gift. Jesus says to the disciples, freely you received this power, this acceptance, freely, as a gift you received. The word freely there is Doreen in the Greek. Doreen means undeservedly, without obligation or compulsion. That is to say, you disciples, you did nothing such that God gave you this power. God was not obligated or under compulsion to give you this power. He gave it for no reason. It makes no sense. It's without a, without a cause. The shorthand for this idea of what has been given to us through the good news of Jesus is the word grace. It's all grace. Grace is not a contract. Grace is a gift. And because it's a gift, we are certainly not equals with God. We're not equals. We did nothing to deserve this gift. We did nothing to earn it which means we can do nothing to lose it. It is a complete gift. The gift of love and life is so great. There is nothing, there is nothing in our world, our hearts, our lives that could affect it. It is God's gift to us. And notice, Paul is having to defend 
the grace, the, the gospel of grace, because Corinth doesn't get it, because no one do, does things like this. So Paul is giving away eternal life to the people in Corinth, and he's not charging them. And they're like, huh, that's interesting. What's your angle? You must have an angle. No one does this. Y'all remember the scene from Elf, um, uh, the movie about Buddy the Elf, the, the human who's raised as an elf, and uh, he actually um, he was adopted there. He has a father in New York. He goes to visit his father. Um, but he's very strange. He doesn't act like the other humans. And so he goes to visit his dad, and his dad can't figure out what his angle is. And so there's this one scene where, where Buddy, uh, the paternity test just came back. Buddy is definitely his son. And uh, Buddy is talking about, like, I'm so excited. We're going to go make, uh, you know, snow angels and, and gingerbread houses and all this. And his dad shoves him up against the wall. He's like, what do you want? Do you want some money or something? And Buddy's like, no, I, I just wanted to meet you. I, I thought you'd want to meet me too. That is to say, his dad didn't understand it. That Buddy didn't have an angle. He just wanted a relationship. It's the, it's the same idea. Paul is like, this is a gift of God for you. And Corinth is like, I don't, I don't trust this. We haven't done anything to earn it. No, you haven't. We can't lose it. No, you can't. You can only receive it. It's for you. But this gift is so priceless. They literally cannot comprehend why God would do this. Why would God put on flesh and come and die for them? It makes no sense. I say this now. This is the greatest news that has ever hit the earth. And yet people are like, I don't know. Because nothing else in the world works like this. Paul goes on talking about this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15 through 18, where he says, I have not worked according to this principle. This principle is true, but I haven't utilized it. He goes, I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. But if not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. What is he saying? He's saying this principle holds true, but I'm not making use of it. I am, I am giving freely this gospel that has been given to me. And I'm not making use of you filling me back up, which then the question is, okay, but how are you being refilled, Paul? What is sustaining you to continue to pour out if no one's pouring back in? And again, the answer is so obvious. It's anticlimactic. He says in verse 17, if I preach not of my own will, then I have a commission. That is to say, Paul did not choose to preach. God showed up to him in Jesus Christ on the Damascus road and said, you are now freely given this grace. You are my servant. Go, go preach. God's relationship in Jesus so fills Paul's heart. We just sang about it. I need you. I need you. What we need to have our lives sustained is not money, is not reputation, is nothing, is not some form of government or another. The only thing we need to sustain our joy and our hope and our peace is God through Jesus Christ. That relationship sustains us and it sustains Paul. So there's no amount of money or applause or love that he needs. It's all 
through Jesus. See, in Newton's laws, energy is neither created nor destroyed. It is transferred in an isolated environment, in a closed environment. That's how it works. Well, Paul has tapped into another energy source. This isn't an isolated environment anymore. There's another realm, the spiritual realm, and there's another energy source that so fills Paul that he is able to give freely to Corinth without making use of the rights of being filled back up. Another great story. Again, I'm going, I guess, old school with some childhood tales. Got Elf. There's another story uh, by Max Locato. And uh, in the story, it's actually these dolls who live in a society. And the way the society works is as they walk around, um, they put stars and dots as stickers, stars and dots stickers on them. It's kind of like that one episode in Black Mirror where we're constantly being judged and rated by our peers. And, you know, if our rating goes up or down, that's our standing in society. They put stars and dots on them, you know. Stars, if you do something really good, you're being celebrated. Dots, if you do something really bad. And this, this, this one doll, the main character, he's just like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't like it. And then he meets this other doll who has no stars and dots on her. Like nothing. And if they try to put it on her, it just falls off. She's not sticky. And he asks her, he's like, what, why do you not have any stars and dots? Why do, do people's applause or criticisms and rejection not phase you? And she says, because I go to see the carpenter, Eli, every day. I mean, it, it's very simple, but it's so beautiful. She is so filled up by her time with Eli, the carpenter, that the, the praise or the criticisms of her society, the stickers no longer stick to her. She doesn't need this energy source, this transfer of energy. She has a new source that fills her. The gospel does not operate on the same plane as our society. It inhabits a new plane with a new energy source. That is what Paul is saying. He goes, you can't earn this, and you can't fill me back up for what I'm giving to you. This is something completely different. It's non-transferable. It's priceless. So one of the questions is, have you received this grace freely today? Do you even know how deeply God loves you? How much, how he's moved heaven and earth to be with you as a gift, freely, for who you are. I don't care how many stars and dots you have on yourself right now. I don't care if you feel like you have more stars than dots, like, like you're the bee's knees in this society, or if you feel like you're just full of dots. Everyone hates you. You hate yourself. I don't care. None of those change anything about this good news, this gift. It is available for you to know you are chosen and loved and here on purpose. That's what Jesus is communicating. That's why God took on flesh. But the principle of energy still holds true. See, that's the thing. Yes, this gospel of Jesus is a brand new energy source, but it still has to be transferred. And how it is transferred reveals whether you've actually received it. That is to say, there is no price on grace. You cannot pay to earn grace. There's no price. It is priceless. But there is a cost. There is a cost to grace. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I will explode 
if I don't preach. I am being so filled up with God through Jesus that I will explode if I do not let this out. If we go back to Matthew 10, the way Jesus would say it to his disciples and to you is, freely you received, freely give. If you received at a cost, then go ahead and give it at a cost. But if you received freely, if you did nothing to earn this gift of love and acceptance, then you can do nothing to lose it, and you better not charge anyone for it. If you try and take this gift of grace and transfer it into the world's currency, then woe to you if you do not preach the gospel. Woe to you if you hoard. And those are really the two options. To not give freely, what can I do? If I've received freely, what can I do if I don't give it freely? Well, I can hoard it. I can just keep this gift for myself and not share it with anyone, which actually demonstrates I haven't really received it. I don't really get it. Or I can profit off it. I can actually convert it into a currency that the world understands. That's what we were talking about earlier. That's what the prosperity gospel does. It takes this gift of grace and it gives it to others. But it says it's just a price for you to get this. Woe to those preachers who do that. But if you've received freely, give freely. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he opens it with this, uh, this, this juxtaposition between cheap grace and costly grace. And it gets us the same idea. Cheap grace, he says, is forgiveness that I can exploit. I receive this gift of God's grace, but then I use it for my own good. I basically, Jesus says, I love you. You're going to live forever with me. I hold none of your, your shortcomings against you. You are mine. And then we say, cool, I'm still going to live the way I want. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, unbelief thrives on cheap grace, for it is determined to persist in disobedience. I want to say something that's going to be a little provocative, but I've certainly sought my own heart, and it's proved true with me. And it's this. When my faith is really lacking, when there's bitterness in my soul, when, when like, I'm just not feeling it, and I'm not acting right, usually, usually it's because I've converted grace into cheap grace. I think I've accepted Jesus' love, but I'm still trying to live in a way where I'm in control, in a way where I call the shots. I'm not fully receiving it freely and not forming my life unto the way of life that he's offered me through his word, in relationship, through the church. When I feel unbelief, and I would challenge you to, to think through your own unbelief when you lack faith, is it perhaps because grace is not costly but cheap in your eyes? Because if grace is not cheap, the other option, says Bonhoeffer, is costly grace. And that is the grace that says, I am receiving God's forgiveness through Jesus, but it requires a repentance. It requires a change in my heart and my life. It requires I reprioritize my values. If I really want to receive this, I have to give my entire life for it because it is so, because Christ gave his life. I have to give everything for it. And if I'm not willing to give all of myself for it, my dreams, my visions, my money, my everything, and again, not as a way to pay him back, but because it is so costly. If I'm not willing to do that, then that's actually testament that I haven't fully received it. It's still cheap in some degree or another in my heart. 
costly grace, when you really understand the gift of God in Jesus, which blows your mind that he would love us so much, but when you really understand it, you give him everything. There's nothing off limits in your life. And there's some things that you don't like about what he's inviting you into, but you give it to him, trusting that if he's willing to give you eternal life, how could you hold any part of your life back from him? How could you say, okay, I'll follow you over here, but with these things over here, nah, these are my own. I'm going to do it my way over here. You can't. You can't. So if you've received freely, give freely. Paul says just later on in 1 Corinthians 9, he goes, though I am a Though I am free to all people, I make myself a slave of all people. And that's the paradox of grace. That's the paradox in this um, philosophy of receiving freely and giving freely. Because when I am fully receiving God's unmerited Doreen love without obligation, under no compulsion on his part, I haven't done anything to earn it, to deserve it. When I'm truly receiving the depths of his love, I'm actually most free in the world. Like that Max Licato story, no stars and dots stick to me. I am most free. This world cannot touch me because I am filled with the presence of God, the grace of God. But if I'm truly receiving that, that grace, if I'm truly receiving it, though I am most free in the world, I'm actually the largest, the biggest servant to the world. I will lay everything down for him and for you so that you might know I will endure any amount of hardship, any amount, so that I put no obstacle in your way for you also receiving this free gift of God and Jesus. And why is this paradox hold true? Why is this how grace works? And I want to invite the band back up with this. I said in the beginning that nothing is free. And it's not. Well, that's true. Nothing is free. Grace is a gift, right, that cost us nothing. But there is a cost to grace, right? Grace is gratuitous. It's free to me who receives it because the giver is the one who paid for it. If I, you know, buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon and I give it to you, it's free to you, but it cost me money. Grace is gratuitous because the cost is borne by the giver. The gift of this love, this eternal life of freedom and joy and peace is free to you. Free. You can have it today because it cost God everything to give it to you. Because Jesus gave up his glory and came to the earth and died on a cross to join you in your real state so that you would have life in abundance. I'm about to have a son, my first child, Anna and me. We're going to have a son. And I realize as I think about grace, that in a lot of ways we're embodying the same principle toward him. He's, he's going to come any moment. 
His life, his existence is a gift of grace. He is gratuitous to Anna's and my life. He's done nothing to earn his life. We're under no compulsion from him to give him existence, to give him life, to give him love. We, it is undeserved. It is without a cause. It's not like he did anything that we're like, oh, okay, now there's a cause to create him. It is completely gratuitous. The life, the care, the love that we're about to shower on this boy, it's completely gratuitous. He has done nothing to earn it. But do not think for a second there's not a cost to be paid by his mother's body. Do not think for a second there's not a cost to be paid. So I've heard to the sleep schedules of his parents in the first couple months of life. Do not think that his parents are not going to sacrifice everything to give him a love and a life that he can never earn. And because he did nothing to earn it, he can't pay us back for it. He can't repay us, but hopefully one day, in the same way I now look at my parents and I say, oh my gosh, you gave so freely to me. How can I not give so freely to my son? How can I not give so freely to my neighbors? Hopefully he'll have that realization and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to give freely right back to my parents and to others, not to pay them back, but because it's been given freely to me. And that's the way the gospel works. God is creating a world that no longer requires contracts and money. Praise Jesus. A world where money is no longer needed because the gift of life and joy is so filling us. We know the gratuitous gift of Jesus that we just take care of our neighbors recklessly. We are most free, which means we are most the servant of all. We will bear the cost so that you can know love and acceptance and forgiveness. And to really know that forgiveness, do not think for a second it's free. Do not think for a second it doesn't have a cost. Receive it freely and give it away freely. One father, one gift, one family. His love gratuitously given to us our love gratuitously given back to him and one another. Freely you have received, guys. Freely you have received. Freely give. Let's close with a prayer, and then we're going to sing a song in response to really internalize what this means. Lord Jesus, we confess that we do not understand grace we understand contracts. We understand us earning things and losing things. But the idea that your acceptance of us, your forgiveness of all the ways we fall short can never lose this gift of, of life, of eternal life, of love that you've given us. That is so hard to comprehend, and yet we confess it's true. And so if there's anyone tuning in right now, God, who has never received that, I pray that right now they would open up their hearts to you and say, Jesus, I want to receive this gift of life and love. I want you to enter my heart, to pour out your spirit, 
so that I can know this eternal life. And Lord, for the rest of us, as we prepare to go vote in this really fractious time we're living in, would we recognize that even as we participate in the world, we are not people of this world. The world runs by the principle of energy where things are transferred and by contracts and money, but that's not what the gospel does. We give freely. We give freely. We give to one another because we've received freely. Would we be people who freely give to you and to each other? Hold nothing back. As Paul says, though we are free, we are actually most a servant and slave of this world. People don't own me. They can't touch my soul. And yet I give my body willingly to them because I love them, because you have loved me. And so, Lord, as we sing this song of response, meet us, reveal to us the costliness and the beauty of grace. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name.